So the year was 1815, and it was the 18th day of June, and there was a battle going on that day, a battle that would become known as the Battle of Waterloo. It was part of the Napoleonic War, and Napoleon had risen to power in the year 1799. And since taking office, he had changed the form of government uh, to a new structure. He convinced the Senate to, to uh, uh, elect him and to proclaim him as the emperor over France. And he started expanding his empire, and partially due to economic reasons and partially out of fear for what Napoleon's true motives were. You, you see, he had come to power. A lot of people thought that he was uh, he's trying to personally take over all of Europe. And so because of this, Britain entered into the war. In fact, they, were, they, they financed a major portion of the war. And the battle, battle of Waterloo was the last decisive battle of the Napoleonic War. And England, uh, the people that were at home in England sat there quietly waiting for news of the outcome. If Wellington could not defeat Napoleon, England had a frightening future ahead. The 1824 supplement to the Encyclopedia Britannica tells the story of what happened that night. It says, from, from the top of uh, the Winchester Cathedral, trained eyes looked for signals flashing across the channel. And they read, W-E-L-L-I-N-G-T-O-N, Wellington, D-E-F-E-A-T. I think that was an E, and I think that was a D, and then they couldn't see any more signals because the fog had gotten so thick. And so all they got was Wellington defeated before the fog set in. And no further transmission was possible. And so the, the, the news of Wellington defeated spread throughout all of England. And despair reigned over the people because they feared the worst. Not only afraid of what their future might hold uh, with Napoleon as their new ruler, but also uh, England had, uh, Britain had financed the war effort by selling bonds. And so they know that if, if Napoleon had won, those, those bonds would not be worth the paper that they are written on. So people started selling them for pennies on the dollar, just trying to get something out of it. In the middle of the next morning, the fog cleared enough for the signals to start coming again. And they saw W-E-L-L-I-N-G-T-O-N, Wellington, D-E-F-E-A-T-E-D, -E defeated. Like, yeah, we already saw this message. But then they're like, there's another word coming, T-H-E-E-N-E-M-Y. Wellington defeated the enemy. How different history would have been without those two final words. And how different the church would be if through the haze of history, all we could see was flashing, Paul defeated. But before we get done tonight with the service, I hope we're able to see that it really says Paul defeated the enemy. And that, that mantra can be written all over the scripture that we're going to look at tonight. So if you want to go ahead and start turning your Bibles, we're going to be in Acts chapter 19 tonight. And we'll get there in just a moment. This is the extraordinary account of Paul's triumph over the darkness, of, uh, that, the darkness that was in Ephesus. Ephesus was a city in the province of Asia. You might recall from the last time I spoke, we talked about Paul's second missionary journey and how after they picked up Timothy, they wanted to go south into Asia, but God was like, nope, that's not the right direction. So they said, let's try to go north into Bithia, and God was like, nope, that's not the right direction. And so they started getting funneled westward to Macedonia, where, they, where Paul received his Macedonia call to go to Philippi and to plant a church there. But Paul has now completed his second missionary journey, and he's out on his third missionary journey. And God has released him to go to Asia, specifically the city of Ephesus. So a little bit about the city of Ephesus. Ephesus was home to what, if we looked at today, we probably would call the World Bank. 
It was the largest center of commerce in the, in the, in the West at the time. And this got it one of its many names. It was known as the mother of materialism because of that. It was also a strategic position, and so it got the name Treasure House of Asia. It was also received the name of Guardians of the Temple of Artemis. And some of your Bibles will translate that as Diana. Um, it's really the same one. It's the only difference is if you were in Ephesus, you would call it the, the Temple of Artemis. If you were from Rome, you would call it the Temple of Diana. But it's really the same, the same uh, the, the false god. And the temple itself wasn't just some hole in the wall. It was actually one of the seven wonders of the world, at the, at the ancient world at the time. It was 200 feet wide, 425 feet long, and had 127 marble pillars towering 60 feet into the air, uh, supporting its, its, its gorgeous ceiling that was inlaid with gold and rare gems, and of course the image of Artemis. That is, is, has supposedly fallen uh, from, from the stars. And this temple was a center of a thriving cult in Ephesus. And a little bit about uh, the, the moral condition in Ephesus. Uh, Artemis was a god of fertility. Um, so all I'll say about that is promiscuity was rampant in Ephesus. Ephesus was also the home of one of the most renowned schools of magic at the time. It had the collection of, it was a collecting place of superstitions, of dark arts, and frankly it's a cesspool for the occult. Aware of this, Paul later would, would pen Ephesians 6 and verse 12, and many of you will recognize this. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers and against authorities and against cosmic powers and present, uh, over this present darkness, against spiritual forces and evil in heavenly places. And so in summary, Ephesus was a watering hole for every kind of magician, every kind of witch, clairvoyant, criminal, con artist, murderer, and so on and so forth. And frankly, they found the climate in Ephesus unusually agreeable to their lifestyle. So tonight, I would like to talk with you about Paul's assault against Ephesus, specifically the darkness that encompassed Ephesus. So tonight, we will look at his, his assault, his assault through planting the Word of God, through watering the Word of God, and through reaping the harvest. So let's jump into uh, Paul's assault through planting the Word of God. And we'll pick up in Acts chapter 19 and verse 1. And it says, And it happened that while Apollos was in uh, Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, to the, said into, what, into what then were you baptized? They said, into John's baptism. That would be John the Baptist. And Paul said, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one that is to, to come after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And then Paul laid his hands on them, and the Holy Spirit came on them. And they began speaking in other tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 in all. So notice again here that the same trend that I've, I've preached about a few times before that Paul continues. When he comes into a new city, he goes first to the Jews and then he goes to the Gentiles. So again, here he goes to the Jews. I can just imagine him, Paul, coming to town and going to the Jewish side of town because we all know there had to be a Jewish side of town. Um, and he began, uh, walked up to a group of people that were there and began t 
talking with them about, about their, their faith. And he discovers that these 12 people were actually disciples of John the Baptist. And he, he, he mentions, the, the scripture mentions that this baptism was a baptism of repentance. He, he, and John, uh, John, John the Baptist was a, was a completion of, or fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy about a voice crying in the wild to prepare the way of the Lord. And so you can imagine that these disciples of John, that their, their hearts were well prepared to hear the gospel. Their hearts were pre uh, prepared soil, well plowed, fertilized, and ready for the seed. So Paul instructs them a little bit further in the faith. And they, they, they believe in the Lord Jesus. And they were baptized and filled with the, the Holy Spirit. And lo and behold, the first church plant is, is planted in the church of Ephesus from that very day. You might recall from the last time I spoke about the Macedonia call that all of us have to go and make disciples. That is what Paul is doing here. He's going. He's, he's gone to Ephesus. He's living out his faith. He's being the salt to the community. He's being light. He's sharing his faith. He's sowing the seeds. And much to his surprise, some of the soil that he has sowed on is in good and pristine shape and, ready, uh, to be, uh, and they are ready to be saved. So I wonder, have you ever thought about how many people you walk past on a daily basis whose hearts are in the same pristine shape? I mean, Paul didn't just walk into the Bible Belt and start sowing seeds. He walked into a, a desert, a, a, the driest desert in the world and started sowing seeds. But as many of the uh, barren parts of the country, or barren parts of the world, there's places of refuge, of, of oases inside of those areas where things grow and thrive even in the middle of those harshest, harshest environments. And in the same way, even if you work in the most unchristian company in the world or you go to the most unchristian school in the world, th there are some hearts that God has prepared, that God has made fertile and ready to receive the gospel. We must never think that if God sends us into a mission field, that the ground is as hard as it looks. Because often, it is our unbelief that has become hard, not the soil itself. So if we can conquer that unbelief, uh, we will likely be surprised to find that God has cleared a way for you. That God has prepared the, prepared the soil for us to sow. And perhaps in a, in, a, in a mission field where we thought there was no Christians at all but us, Perhaps that there are 12 that are just waiting to hear the good news. So here, in a few minutes, we're going we're gonna to have a chance for you guys to respond and come to the altars and spend some time in prayer. And I would encourage you to pray th that God would prepare the hearts of the people in your mission field and that God would give you the courage to sow the seeds. So once the seeds are planted, sometimes it takes some watering. So let's jump into watering the Word of God. We'll pick up in verse 8. And he entered into the synagogue, and after three months, after three months speaking boldly, reasoning and persuading them uh, about the kingdom of God. But when, they be, but, but when some became stubborn and continued in their unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. So the seeds have been sown, and now Paul starts watering. And he spends three months watering those seeds in the synagogue. This is one of his longest hearings in a synagogue that is recorded in the Bible. 
And his method is by reasoning. Uh, a more literal Greek translation of the Greek there might be dialoguing or an exchange of ideas, more of a give and take and a question and answer. Some were persuaded through the, the Holy Spirit and, and through Paul's reasoning, but some, it said, became obstinate. obstinate. And so when the persecution set in, he, his, fellow, um, his followers made arrangements to continue the dialogue in a rented hall that was owned by a philosopher by the name of Tyrannus. Just a side note, there's nothing to do with the sermon, but Tyrannus uh, uh, actually literally translates as tyrant. And so there's a great debate about whether his parents really named him Tyrant or whether it was a nickname that his students, uh, as being a philosopher, that would call him as Tyrant. Like I said, nothing wrong with the sermon, but kind of interesting note. So on the surface, this move to Tyrannus may not seem very significant. But this change shows Paul's uh, aggressiveness, his determination, his stick to in this, in, 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 this uh, um, in Ephesus. And we can find from, from some extra-biblical texts that um, it, when Paul rented the Hall of Tyrannus, he rented it from the fifth hour to the tenth hour. For those of you not good with the ancient way to tell time, that's roughly from 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. And that is when, uh, so that's when the people in Ephesus would take their midday siesta. You see, in, in Ephesus, they would get up at dawn and they would work from roughly 7 to about 11 a.m. And then they would take a break from 11 to 4 during the heat of the day. And uh, then they would continue their work from 4 until about dusk. In fact, one of the, the, the uh, commentaries I ran across on this said um, that at 1 p.m. there's more problems. There's probably more people asleep than there were at 1 a.m. But Paul was not asleep at this time. He was in the Hall of Tyrannus lecturing. But he wasn't just spending his time in Ephesus teaching. We can see when he comes back through Ephesus, um, he stops at Ephesus on his way back to Jerusalem in Acts chapter 20 and verse 34. It says, you yourselves know that these hands of mine supplied all my needs. He's not saying this to brag, but he's saying this because religion was a big business in Ephesus. And so Paul was determined to keep himself free of any suspicion that he was in it for the money. So he was working hard. He was making tents from, uh, from, from dawn until 11 a.m. Then he would go to the Hall of Tyrannus and, and he would teach from 11 to 4. And then he would go back and he would work, build tents again from 4 until dark. This was a killer schedule that Paul would have been keeping. But it demonstrates his persever perseverance and his, his, his stick to -itism. And Paul both paid his, uh, his own way and he taught. And I'm a numbers guy, so I like to just throw some numbers at you. He taught five, days, five hours a day, six days a week, 52 weeks uh, a year. And the, and the next verse, it says that he, he preached for two full years. So if you quickly do the math on that, that's 3,120 uh, 3, hours of lecturing. That's 3,120 hours of sowing, of watering, of discipleship. This is equivalent to 130 days of, of lecturing continuously for 24 hours a day. And Paul was, was, a, was a determined man who had a great uh, personal cause, made a relentless assault on the darkness that encompassed Ephesus. Let's pick up in verse 10. This continued for about two years so that, so that all the residents of Asia uh, heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. 
and God was doing extra, extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. And so Luke, the author of Acts, he tells us that everyone in the, in the country of Asia heard the message of salvation. This is, the, this is the, the, the country of the modern day country of Turkey. The whole thing would have heard the message of the Lord. In fact, during this time, the seven churches that are mentioned in Revelation 2 and 3 are planted during this time frame by Paul. And so by any estimates, what happened during those two years was truly amazing. It also says that the advance of the gospel was accompanied by unusual miracles, or perhaps a different, uh, more literal translation of the Greek there is miracles not of an ordinary kind. So some of these miracles were done through Paul directly, through him laying on hands and praying for them. Others were indirect, being somehow mediated through articles of clothing that Paul um, had that would be laid on the, the, the sick so that they could be healed. And just to be clear, Paul was not selling these handkerchiefs and his, his aprons to local people. He was not doing as some you know, uh, evangelists have done in the past where, just send me $100 and I'll send you this handkerchief that's been dipped in the River Jordan. If it's prayerfully applied, it can be, bring healing. He's not doing that. The, the Ephesus, er, and, uh, Acts says that those items were carried away. And depending on how you translate the Greek there, it can mean a couple different things. It could mean that, that they, they came and they said, hey, Paul, can I borrow that and go try to heal my friend? Or it could mean that they took it without his knowledge. But either way, they were applying them to the sick, and the sick were being healed. But the full meaning of these indirect miracles ties directly into Paul's labor, is, is Paul's sacrifice of labor during this time. You see, the Greek word there for handkerchief, it's Latin load word, it translates into English as sweat. So these were literally the handkerchiefs that Paul was using to wipe the sweat from his brow as he was working those hard, hard mornings and evenings making tents. And the aprons would have been the aprons that he was wearing as he was making the same tents. And so these hankies and these aprons were symbols that God chose to employ to bring healing, to bring freedom from, from bondage to these people. But they were just symbols. There's nothing magical about them. It's the same way as with, uh, with, with Moses and his staff. You know, he'd throw it on the ground, it would become a snake, or they'd raise it up over the, the, the sea, and the water would be pulled back. There's nothing magical about the staff. It's just a symbol that God chose to honor. And so these sweatbands and these aprons, they were symbols that, that, that God chose to honor and to channel his power through. So Paul is working insane hours, he's sharing the gospel at all costs, and, and God's rewarding him with a fruitful ministry and some unusual miracles. He might say, okay, what are we supposed to take away from this? Well, I'm glad you asked. So as, as we look at this in the light of the world today, I can't help but wonder if in the, the hustle and bustle of our daily lives, that we've gotten too busy for God, or too busy for God's model of, of evangelism and discipleship. And, and, um, and maybe all that we can carve out is just a, f a few hours and a Sunday and a Wednesday and hopefully a few minutes during the week to do some personal devotions and spend time in prayer. But as we look at Paul's example here, he was spending four hours a day evangelizing and discipling believers, six days a week. 
Now, I'm not saying, unless, of course, that's what God calls you to do, that we should keep this exact same schedule. But what I, I think we, need, we must realize is that this idea of evangelism and discipleship that we're all called to do, it's not going to be a quick and easy process. It's not going to be, hey, brother, just meet with me three times and we'll, this month and we'll check that box and you'll be discipled. Instead, it is walking life together. Paul was in Ephesus for two years walking life together with them. Two years evangelizing and discipling. Jesus was with his disciples for three years discipling them. You know, Pastor CJ made mention to it before that Danny and CJ and I were working on kind of designing a, a discipleship program for New Song. We're looking at probably roughly 18 months of discipleship for the, that program. So in a culture that has become a fast food culture, in a culture that's become the I want it and I want it now culture, we might find ourselves needing to reevaluate our priorities so that we can fulfill God's call to disciple others, or to be discipled ourselves, and then to go out and disciple others. And so just, just to be clear on this point before we move on, I'm, I'm not saying that we have to work insane hours in order to have a fruitful ministry. The truth is that it has to be held in balance. And while most Christians today I don't think are in this camp, but there are some Christians that have worked themselves to the brink of exhaustion. The truth is we need sleep. We need to take care of ourselves. We need to take our vacations. And so we must strike a balance between our hard work and our rest. But it does show us that we, like Paul, we're not going to accidentally win a spiritual battle. We're not going to accidentally win a soul for the Lord. We're not going to accidentally disciple someone for the Lord. We're going to have to be intentional about it. We're going to have to work hard and put some effort into it. So here in a few minutes when we have the altar call, we're giving opportunity to come up and pray. I would encourage you to pray and ask God to show you if your schedule has gotten too busy for him. Prayerfully consider that the fruits of your life and ask him to show you if, if the lack of fruit might be linked to your busy schedule. Ask God to give you a heart for discipling others. So once we sow the seed, once we water it and it starts to growing, it's time to reap the harvest. And so Paul, he made tents, he taught, he pastored, he discipled, he, he watched over uh, God's people, he went from house to house, he evangelized, he planted churches, he directed a great missionary enterprise while he was in Ephesus. And at some point during his ministry, Luke records this next account that we're going to take a look at in picking up in verse 13. Then some itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over, over those who had an evil spirit, saying, I adjure you in the name of Jesus who, who, whom Paul proclaims. So exorcism was a common trade in Ephesus. As you can imagine, with the, being this, this kind of cesspool of the occult, it was a common issue that they struggled with. And, it, um, and so it was common for, for exorcists in that time to try to invoke a more powerful demon in order to drive out another demon. It was also common for, for, the, for the priest to tack on uh, the name of, of Jesus at the end of it, thinking that that would give them additional power. 
And it, even, it was even thought that some of the, the, the high priests in Jerusalem had the secret name of, or secret pronunciation of the name of the Lord. And then when it was invoked, it, it had some kind of special effect over the spirits. But these traveling exorcists apparently did not have that. But they probably saw Paul drive out a demon. And so they decided to tack on, said, hey, if it worked for him, it might work for us, and tack that on the end of their incantation. But little did they know that they were about to be schooled. Little did they know that they were about to get, become an unforgettable example to others. Let's look at verse 14. Seven sons of the Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man, and the man, who, with the man in whom the evil spirit leapt on them, mastering all of them, overpowering them, and so they fled from the house, naked and wounded. So the seven sons of Sceva thought that this would just be another quick exorcism, a quick dollar, but, but little did they know that by tacking on the name of Jesus and Paul onto the end of their incantation, that what was about to happen. The demon rolled his eyes and it said, I know this Jesus guy you're talking about. I know this Paul guy you're talking about, but who do you think you are? And after that, all they remember was a few lefts, a few rights, the door opening, and streaking madly for cover. Can you imagine the buzz at the local watering hole about this one? And we can see part of their response from verse 17. In verse 17, it says, And this became known to all the, the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and the fear of and, and fear fell on them, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. I find it interesting that it did, the, ex, the extraordinary miracles that were happening didn't bring this fear. But it was this, this, the, the, this, the, the, um, but it was a knowledge that people that had tried to use the name of the, the Jesus had been judged that brought fear to them. Let's take a look at verse 18. Also, many of those who now believed came, confessing and divulging their evil practices. So through the sons of Sceva, and likely Paul addressing it, uh, addressing it as part of his ministry, believers became highly sensitized to their sin, their sin and started to, to respond to it. It kind of res reminds me of a story I heard once about a nine-year-old girl who wrote President Grover Cleveland, admitting that she had used two postage stamps a second time because they had not been properly canceled. She asked the president to forg for forgiveness and enclosed money, in, in, in money uh, for the stamps in the envelope. And she concluded by writing, I will never, ever do it again. Her conscience had been quickened, and, her, and she responded with confession. In the same way, the, 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 the church and Eph the, the people in Ephesus had become sensitized to their, their sin, and, um, and, and the degree, and they started confessing it to one another and abandoning their evil ways. Let's wrap up by taking a look at verse 19. And a, a number of those who had practiced magical arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted their, their value and found it to be 50,000 pieces of silver. Can you imagine the terror on the face of those that were still in, in the darkness about the, the fortune of, of the occult material going up in flames in the center of town for all to see? 
they were they were so uh, terrified by this that uh, the one, at a later point the union leader of the the silversmith workers goes and starts a riot to try to stop Paul. We won't have time to get into it tonight, but if you finish reading the chapter on your own, you'll find it in there. But now darkness is in full retreat, and the people have come to the Lord by the dozens, casting off their old life and putting on their new life. These people are serious about their decision, and they were making a clean break from their past and their sinful ways. This isn't just... Uh, this isn't just something that happens back in Bible times either. It's happened a few times over, for, uh, over, the, over the years. Probably the most recent time was in the early 90s in the country of Argentina. There was a period of about three years where the evangelical community grew by about 500%. And the, the growth was seen through an evangelistic rallies over those years. And as part of those, 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 those meetings, they had a ritualistic book burning at the front. Their leader, Ed Savalcio, uh, explains it this way. A 100-gallon drum was set up at the, at, at the left of the platform to dispose of all the satanic paraphernalia. As the people came forward, they would dump all, of, all kinds of occult-related items into it. Before praying for the people, gasoline was poured over the contents, and a match was struck, and every evil thing went up in flames. In, and while the burning was taking place, some of the people reported spontaneous deliverance. The darkness was in full retreat there, and the gospel flourished because of it. Have you ever read through this and kind of wondered to yourself, if the same thing happened today, what, what would be uh, taken out and burned, whether literally or figuratively? I wonder if it would be things like drugs, like magazines, movies, books, uh, TV shows, or internet sites. Perhaps, uh, perhaps here, um, perhaps there's even things in your life uh, that aren't bad per se, but they, if you're honest with yourself, they consume so much of your time that they have become like an idol. Perhaps it is time for, for us to examine our lives and see if there's anything that we need to make a clean break from. And here in a few minutes when we, when we have the, the altar call, I encourage you to spend some time in prayer tonight and ask God if, if there's things that you're letting into your life, if they're helping or hurting your relationship with him. Ask him if there's things that you need to make a clear, clean break in your life from. So as I begin wrapping up, if the worship team wants to come back. There's one last story I want to tell you. And, or as perhaps Paul Harvey would say, here's the rest of the story. And it's the victory in Ephesus. It's not in the Bible, but it's been handed down as part of church tradition. And a, a researcher from, from Yale, a historian by the name of Ramsey McQuillan, has researched it. And he says, near as he can tell, it's a true account. And it's the story of the Apostle John, after being released from the island of Patmos, where he wrote the book of Revelation. And it says... Uh, the, the Yale historian, Ramsey McQuillan, tells... Uh, tells us of John, unlike, tells us that John, unlike Paul, did come and confront Diana directly. John went into the temple and engaged in a strategic level of spiritual warfare. According to McQuillan, in the temple, John prayed, O oh God, at the, name, uh, at the name of every idol has to take flight and every demon an unclean power. 
Now let the demon that is here take flight in thy name. And when he spoke those words through the power of the Holy Spirit, the sacred altar of Diana split into many pieces and half the temple collapsed. And within 50 years, the, 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 the religion of Diana of Artemis was non-existent. And Ephesus became a center of Christianity for the next 200 years. In the same way, God wants you to have victory in your life tonight. He wants to rule and reign in your life. He wants to be the center of your life until he returns. So I want to open up these altars. And I want you to invite you to come and pray or to make an altar where you're at and spend some time in prayer. If there's things in your life that you need to make a clean break from, come and give those to God. If you need to reevaluate your priorities, come and ask God what your schedule should be, what he wants your schedule to be. And for the rest of us, why don't we spend some time praying for our mission field, asking God to make the soil fertile, asking God to give us the courage to go and sow, and the strength to disciple those that are one for the Lord. So these altars are open. I invite you to come, spend some time in prayer, and Pastor CJ will come and close us out here in a little bit.